Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm glad you could join me as I'm going to be speaking with Sue Waite today. And we have one of those wide-ranging conversations that I really enjoy because we talk a lot about her life and what's led her into the position that she has. And then we also talk a lot about the Canterbury West Coast Welfare Guardians Trust. In the show notes, I've put a link to the Welfare Guardian Trust so that you can click it and find out more if it's of interest. I really enjoyed this conversation with Sue, and if you do as well, then why not check out some of the other more than 350 conversations in the back catalog? There's a lot of interviews with people who are doing amazing things, and I'm sure that you'd enjoy them. There's a simple way that you can support Seeds Podcast, and that is hit subscribe. That way you can get a notification when there's new interviews. And also, would you consider telling one other person about Seeds? And there's heaps more information at the revamped website, theseeds.nz. Now let's get into this conversation with Sue. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Sue Waite, who's a social worker and a trustee of the Canterbury West Coast Welfare Guardian Trust. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation um, because I would love to find out about the work of this trust. I think it's Mm -hmm. doing some really important things. um, And in particular, people who maybe don't have someone to be a voice for them. And, and, you know, stepping in and being that voice. So I'd love to find out about that. And actually, I was involved in setting it up. So it's kind of fun to see, you know, the connection points that we're going to have in this conversation. Um, but before we talk about that, I always like to find out about the background of a person. Okay. So in your case, could you tell us about what your life was like when you were, say, five years old? I'm the youngest of um, four children. Uh, my, my father was a mechanic, and when I was five years of age, we moved to Rotorua from Christchurch. So Christchurch is my hometown, but um, I was away from Christchurch for many years. So we moved to, to um, Rotorua. And I started school there. Uh, I enjoyed being up in Rotorua. Sort of when I went there at five, it was a small town, and it's grown quite significantly since then. Mm. So, yeah, what was what was Rotorua like at that time? You know, you're growing up as a child. Were you aware? You know, this kind of a touristy sort of destination with hot springs and things, or yeah, what was it like? Yeah, I think so. It, it was a fun place to grow up because it did have that small town feel. Mm-hmm. I don't think we were that aware sort of when we were younger that it was a kind of a tourist mecca. It was kind of to a lesser degree. Um, we There used to be a, um, a skating rink in town and I remember as a teenager I'd walk from my home, which was miles away. You know, I, I, it was quite a long way to walk, but you'd walk all the way into town, go skating for a while with your friends, and then walk home again. And didn't really think much of it. You know, we were used to being reasonably active. Um, and there were hot pools in the same area where where we went skating. And, and one of my friends' fathers ran that those hot pools. So we'd go skating, and then we'd go to the hot pools. And um, yeah, it was it was a fun place to be. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty relaxing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to go in that hot water and yeah. and relax after activity. Yeah, mm. it's actually really it's a beautiful place because you've got lots of lakes and you know different um, interesting hills and mountains as well. It's mm. yeah, there's a lot of character there. Yeah, and we used to go swimming in the lakes, and and then the lakes unfortunately ended up with lots of weed in them, so they weren't really that nice to swim in anymore. But um, 
lots of yeah lakes to sort of play around on in boats and kayaks and mm. sort of quite a lot of outdoor activity which mm. was which was great when you were growing up yeah so was that something that your parents were kind of emphasizing like the outdoors and going on holidays that were outdoor focused or um I mean, they weren't sort of that outdoorsy in some ways, not not like they didn't go tramping or any of those sorts of things. But I remember many trips in the weekends to go to um, the Mount, Mount Monganui, uh, that's near Tauranga, and we'd go there and have a picnic. And, you know, we used to have lots of picnics and go swimming and um, and that sort of thing. So that was, well, because mum and dad weren't that well off, so it was simple pleasures like, like um, just swimming and picnics and things which was really nice as a family growing up yeah that's wonderful is that something that looking back you realize or did were you aware growing up that there wasn't a huge amount of 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 money yeah in terms of money or you know opportunity that comes from having money i um i don't think i was fully aware but i remember when i became a teenager um and you know, you want all the latest clothing and things like that, and and mum, you sort of we we always had reasonable clothes, but never the label type of things. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she said to me, um, you know, if if you want those, you'll have to get a job. So, at about fifteen, I I used to get school holiday jobs, and and I'd buy myself like a I bought this um, jag full length denim coat, and thought I was so cool. And my my friend and I both bought one, and we used to cruise around t- town thinking we're the coolest kids on the block. Sort of thing. <laughs> um, and you know things like I wanted to get my ears pierced, and Mum said, you know, if you want to do that, you know, you can pay for it yourself. So right, right. I think it taught me a good lesson that um, you can't necessarily rely on your parents to pay for everything that you feel that you want or need. Mm. That you know what you get in life, you have to work for. Mm. Well, that's a valuable lesson to learn early mm. on, isn't it? Mm. And coming through your teenage years, you know, you're 15 or 16, did you have an idea of what you would do after your high school experience? No. Um, it, it was quite interesting. I I was, um, I did quite well at school. I was good at English. I was good at shorthand. I was particularly good at, at um, short, shorthand and typing, but particularly t- shorthand itself. Mm. And um, when I got to the end of the fifth form, the sixth form didn't do those commercial subjects. So my mum suggested I start at a, um, a business college to build on those strengths of shorthand and typing. And it wasn't that I had a burning am- ambition to be a secretary or anything. It was just seemed to be logical because um, that was something that I was particularly good at. Mm. Um, and, I, and I did reasonably well. But um, I found sort of doing office work wasn't really that exciting. Right. <laughs> it, was, it was just something to do in those couple of years till I kind of worked out what I wanted to do with myself. Yeah. And talk to us about that process of working out what you wanted to do. Yeah, what were some of the factors or some of the influences that led you to decide on that? I think it took me quite a few years to figure things out. And I had my first child when I was 20. Mm-hmm. In the scheme of things, I didn't have a huge kind of work background. I worked in some offices, uh, did some funny little jobs like working in a chicken hatchery okay. when when my son was little. Yeah, I think I, I did have sold Avon and, and, and all those sort of things that you do when you're trying to work around children. So yeah, it took me years before I actually needed to or wanted to think about a career as such. Mm. So what was it, because I'm always curious about transitions in life and 
and what you're doing today is quite different to office work, mm. you know. So what were some of the factors that led you to develop an interest in that area? I have, have been married three times. I'm, I'm third one's the charm, so <laughs> he's a keeper. Yep. But my second husband was an alcoholic, basically, and very abusive. So that was, you know, a very negative experience for me and my children. But when I felt that I needed to get out and be safe, I contacted, uh, I had a friend of mine that had helped me out a couple of times when we'd had to leave in a hurry and we'd stayed with her. Mm. And she was a social worker and she was very highly thought of. And when I was trying to think of what do I do now, because I felt like I needed to leave town, I thought about Jenny and her being a social worker and how much she was um, valued in that role and how amazing she was as a person. And I thought, you know, I wonder how you get to be a social worker and help people because I felt I had two choices. I could either be a victim and let that keep me down or I could use that experience as a positive way to move forward with my life. So I chose the latter. Mm. And I contacted the University of Canterbury and said, what do I have to do to be a social worker? Wow. They said, you need to come and do a, a social work degree. We have one in Christchurch. It's starting in June, and this was around about uh, April, May. Mm -hmm. So I had a very short time, and um, basically, what, long story short, I ended up enrolling in the social work degree course. Wow, that's amazing. And I'm really curious about that bit that you said you made a choice not to be a victim, but to actually take the experience and, and use it in a positive way, mm -hmm. you know, to help others. Was that like a moment in time that you remember thinking or did it develop over time? Or yeah, tell us about that. I think it, it developed quite quickly once I left, because I, I left my ex-husband, my second husband, went into rental accommodation right. and thought, you know, where, where, where am I going to get my most, most of my support from if I'm on my own with the children? And my mum, my dad, um, some aunties, cousins, all sorts were down here in Christchurch. And I thought, I think I need to move home to Christchurch. I see. Um, and because I was on a benefit, I went to work in income and just said, can you help me get to Christchurch? And so they uh, agreed to help pay for my costs to go, go down to Christchurch to live. Um, and, but before they agreed, they said to me, you have to, um, con you have to get something from the women's refuge to say that you're at risk so that that will give us a, a reason for funding you to go down. And even though I'd not had any contact with them as such, I rang them and had to talk to them um, and and they, I thought, you know, if I can be in an organisation like that that helps women, then, um, you know, it just sort of felt right to be doing something like social work where I could help. Yeah, that's great. So what happened as you're studying and getting to the end of your degree? Yeah, did you know what type of social work you'd get into? Or, yeah, talk us, to us about that. Well, it's interesting. When I, when I first approached the, the, um, the university, I spoke to a guy called Ken Daniels, who was one of the tutors, and he, he was very supportive. Uh, he was great. And he said to me, lots of people come into social work and think, this is the area of social work that I want to do. And I was really set on working as a, um, a social worker in 
um, a refuge or something. And he said, you know, people change over time. I said, no, no, this is absolutely <laughs> where I'm heading. I, I, you I already want, know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm firm. I'm not going to change my yeah, mind. Yeah. Um, and then uh, part of the course, you have a placement. Mm. Uh, and I had a placement at Christchurch Public Hospital as a social work student. And um, I just found it was great because you were surrounded by other social workers who had such a broad range of experience in a number of areas and the work was interesting and the, the thing is I'm really interested in people. My mm. husband says I'm nosy, I'm not. I'm interested in people. There's a difference, <laughs> not much, but there is a difference. Yep. Um, so um, I would find that I'd get some elderly lady in a bed that needed some, some support to get home and we were only supposed to have a short sort of conversation with them. And I'd find myself there for nearly an hour and she was telling me all about her history and her cat and friends and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And I just found it was it was a privilege and it was really something that I enjoyed, that interaction with people and seeing them not just as an elderly person sitting in front of you, but seeing them as somebody who's had a life and acknowledging that life. Mm. So, yeah, I just, yeah, it was a, sort of a richness to, to that person that, you know, if you didn't take time to talk to them. If you just said, what do you need to get home? You're missing a whole chunk of who they are as a person. Yeah, well, that resonates a lot with me because the word that I love, and I use it a lot on this podcast, is the word being curious and curiosity being what prompts you to ask the question mm -hmm. and then find out more and then find out a different thing. And, and these conversations, like I don't script them. Mm. I just am following my curiosity <laughs> in my questions, you mm. know, and I, I think there's real value in that. And too often we're simply asking people, oh, what do you do? Like, what's your job title? Mm, mm. And then that's it, you know, yeah. whereas actually if we ask questions like the ones I'm asking you, we can unlock a lot more about a person's history if we know like where they're from and mm. what led them to choose to do social work. So, yeah, it's a really important principle, I think, yeah. is um, being curious. Actually, I was talking to somebody at work the other day, somebody I'm working with, and I said to her, I said, I'll let you in on a secret. Social workers have a sneaky little tool that they use. And she said, what's that? And I said, we try to ask open questions. Mm. So I said, if I ask you a closed question, a yes-no question, that's all I'm going to get from you. So if I pause for a while, I'm trying to formulate uh, the question in the form of an open question. So that if I, if I ask that open question, you have to th stop and think about how am I going to answer that? And so you get more content and more richness because you're asking that question and giving them that opportunity. Yeah, I really like that. That's wonderful. So instead of saying, do you like social work, which would be a yes, no, mm. you could say, tell me about social work and what motivates you or something like that yes, right yes. like it's an open no scripted answer is going to come yeah. back yeah that's great so thinking about the social work side yeah what happened next in your your career because I'm, I'm quite keen to understand what you're involved in today okay um, but just talk us through that that career I guess and, and where you headed and who where, you were where I started with. from and that sort of thing yeah yeah um, okay, I, I started, um, basically I worked with people with dementia, first off, mm -hmm. um, and that, that was in a small community organisation, and it was, um, it was, it was, compared to the hospital at the time in that previous job, we had the luxury of time with these people, so we got to know them as people recently diagnosed, 
uh, we got to know their their family members um, and I really enjoyed that opportunity to to keep meeting them and keep supporting them along the way rather than those short interventions that you get um, when you're doing hospital social work sometimes. That's great and tell me about that work because people who have dementia and they might have parts of their life that they remember right but but they're losing elements of it yeah what, what was that like I imagine it would be both sad but also helping and empowering them as well yeah it's 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 a fascinating um, place to work with people with those sort of issues mm. um, but it's it's also quite um, interesting what what somebody with dementia will remember that you don't think that they will um, if there's a um, an emotional content to a memory they're going they're more likely to remember it Whereas if you ask them what you had for breakfast, basically who cares? Mm. You know, mm. they're not going to remember that because it has no kind of emotional value for them. Mm. So is that where it comes in, you know, playing music of their childhood or something that will trigger other memories? That would be quite important. Yeah, it can be. Um, and, and we used to have groups where people who were in the early stages of dementia would meet and, and there's nothing quite like being in a room with a bunch of people who have had a similar experience to kind of talk about what they're experiencing and, and you can see a light bulb moment go off in people's heads like mm. it's not just me yeah, yeah yeah and how do you support someone with early stage dementia in terms of someone who's realizing that like they're aware that this is going to get worse what what do you do to help them um i, th- I think giving them space to talk about how they feel supporting the people that support them so that they have a strong network um, linking them in with with other people again who who have similar experiences, and talking to them about things like have you got a plan for the future? Mm. Um, that's really important because there is, I think, a bit of a misconception with um, things like enduring power of attorney uh, that it's for old people. You know, you talk to most people that you talk to will say, no, I don't have an enduring power of attorney. I've got a will. And, um, you know, I'll say, that's great. Your wishes are being expressed in that document for when you're no longer here. But what if something happens and you're here but you can't make decisions? Mm. And and people will say, oh, I did that for my mum because she's getting old and she's getting a little bit forgetful. And I said, anybody over the age of 18 um, should really think about having an enduring power of attorney. Mm. So it's, it's giving people the opportunity to protect themselves Um, and the people that they care about. Yeah. Well, you know, my other hat, I'm a podcaster, but I'm also a lawyer, Mm -hmm. so I totally endorse what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And it's it's amazing. The statistics are very shocking Mm -hmm. when it comes to even the number of people who have a will, let alone an enduring power of attorney. And just to just to flesh it out a bit more, you can have one for your property and one for your health. So it's actually really, really important. And the classic, you know, scenario that people would throw out is, you get hit by the bus, right? Mm, and and mm. you're in hospital. Well, you're in a coma. Who's going to make the decisions about your health, your well-being, or your property? So, yeah, I totally endorse what you're saying. And and the thing is, too, you know, often people will say, I'm the next of kin, thinking that gives them some some God-given right. I right. don't know. And, and I have a little bit of a saying. It's a bit cheeky, but I say next of kin means next to nothing. 
it doesn't give you the legal right because people think because I'm their wife, I'm their husband, um, I can tell you what's going to happen with, mm. with this person and they don't have any legal right to do it. Yeah, yeah, it's good to document it and be clear. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, that's great. So what happened next in your career after working with people with dementia? What have you gotten into since then? Um, I worked for the Salvation Army during the earthquakes. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I sort of headed a team of social workers who supported people going through lots of trauma and, and loss um, and um, all, the, all the sorts of things that happen when you have an earthquake in your life. Um, so I did that for a couple of years. And, and then, again, that was quite rewarding. But it's, um, it's interesting, after one particularly big earthquake, um, my husband said to me this particular morning I was going to head off for work and he said, you can't go, go to work today. We've just had a major earthquake. And I went, I work in earthquake support. <laughs> so it would be a bit strange if I said I can't come to work because of an earthquake. So, yep. um, This is the time I'm needed, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 this is what I'm here for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. And, yeah, talk us through then the next stages, I guess, and maybe bringing us up closer to today. Okay, so um, uh, after that, I, I, I think I had a couple of sort of small jobs that um, were just temporary. And then I um, went to the hospital and, and basically, um, potluck, saw the, the um, head social worker and just said, have you got anything coming up? And I ended up with a locum job um, at the hospital. Uh, and I've been there now for nearly 10 years. Wow, that's a long time. Mm. And what are you involved in there? Um, I, I work on a ward, um, and, and it's an unusual ward in that it's under 65 predominantly, so lots of people who have um, sort of mortgages to pay, uh, used to be working, children that they're bringing up, um, they might have businesses, all those sorts of things, so... It's, it's a different kind of complexity to working with the older population. Mm, right. And are these people who are there sort of on a long-term basis or they're coming in and going out? or A medium term. Some people, you know, only a few weeks. Um, but, you know, other, others might be there for a few months. It just depends on the, the degree of, of their incapacity, really. Yeah. And... What are the things that you've learned, having done this for a while now, um, what are the things that you've learned, I guess, about supporting people like that, but also the um, the whanau, the family, who are impacted as well? Um, there's a few things that stand out for me that, that um, constantly amaze me, is people's resilience, but also um, when I see people with children... I, I always check in with them and say, your, your children go to school and this is something that's happened not just to the person in the bed that we're mm. caring for, it happen, happens to their, their spouse, their partner and the children. Yeah. And so when I say to people, looking at the fact that you've got an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old, for example, um, what have you done in the way of contacting the school? And, and quite often people say, what do you mean? Yeah, why would I tell the school? Yeah, why would I tell the school? And it's like, well, this hasn't just happened to you. And children of that age can, uh, they're old enough to have a perception of 
this is something that's a, a big deal in our lives. You know, Dad's had a stroke, for example. Um, Mum is upset. I, I, if I tell them that I'm worried, that I'm upset, mm. then it's going to make them cry. And so they sometimes withdraw and the family members say, oh, no, they're fine. They don't, don't seem to have much effect at all. And I'll say to them, well, um, it's a good idea to tell the teachers because if they suddenly start acting up or not doing their work or there's some kind of reaction, they could get labelled as being disruptive and, right. and, and have these negative connotations where if you tell the school, um, then they go, okay, this kid needs support because of what's happening in their lives. Mm. But yeah, quite often people sort of don't get that. And they'll, they'll say, oh, my children uh, will talk to me because we have a good relationship. And I said, they may not mm. because they want to protect you. Mm. That's a really good point because I think so often we'll focus on the individual who's suffered whatever the thing is, and yet there is that ripple effect out, isn't mm. there? Even beyond the immediate family, it might be impacting on others in the community or you know, obviously their workplaces or mm. other things as well. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and for people who are going through something that they didn't expect, what are, have you noticed? Are there sort of stages of, you know, an awareness of this has happened to me? You know, like as I can imagine, like a stroke, for example. You're healthy, everything's fine, your life is going the way that you want it to, and then all of a sudden, something hits you out of left field mm -hmm. that you didn't expect. Are there sort of stages that you see people? moving through as they come to terms with that or is every person different i think every person is different um i think what we need to understand when you're working in health is that um people are going through through major major issues with their health mm -hmm. and um you know sometimes when, when you're facing these sort of health challenges and i have some of my own um that you um, sometimes you can get angry or upset or you know those sorts of things and and sometimes I I've, I find people might get judged because they're always grumpy they're always angry um, and you know like I say that they haven't just stubbed their toe they've had a, mm. a major health event and I think you have a right to be a little bit narky a little bit out of sorts mm. a little bit angry um, and and have the space to do that mm. yeah. Yeah, I can imagine there would be stages, I guess, of I can't believe this has happened and mm. then at some point accepting it and then at some point what next, you know? Yeah, and and I think one of the most challenging things for people, I'm a planner in life, it's mm. how I'm built and I can usually recognise when a wife is, is a planner as well and, I'll, and I'll, um, one of the things that I try to do is to say to them, try and live in the now try and concentrate on how the person you're supporting is um, rather than thinking way down the track, you know, I'm going to have to alter my house, I'm going to have to move into a smaller one. Um, if they're in a wheelchair, what's that going to look like? What, what they are now is what we should look at because what they're like in six months, a year's time, we can't predict because people improve at, at, at different stages. So... Mm. Part of my work is saying, try, I know it's hard because I'm a planner, I mm. recognise that. Try not to think that far down the track, think in the now, focus on the positives and the progress, and that's the best way to proceed. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. 
Um, if you're willing to share it, I'd be interested in, you mentioned your own journey. Um, how has it been, you know, working with people who are suffering from some event that they didn't expect? How, how has it been for you personally, you know, going through things? And what has that meant for you, having had that experience? But then also, how has it changed anything of how you relate with patients that you're coming across? Um, so I have a diagnosis that... Um, uh, I received three years ago um, of Parkinson's disease. I'm in the very early stages, um, but I had a, a mum and dad with Parkinson's as well. So it's strong in my family <laughs> and I drew the short straw. But mm. um, it, it gives me an insight into um, how I manage with things and to encourage other people to plan for their future. And I think it, it gives me a really good insight that I'm not, uh, and I don't tend to share this that much. Well, I don't share it with people that I'm working with directly, but um, I have a, a blog that I write, um, and that for me is a um, it's a lifesaver. I started about a month after I was diagnosed, and it gives me somewhere to send my thoughts and feelings, and because it's public, it I hope helps other people, and I've mm. had some good feedback. And so because of my experience with my diagnosis and with my parents, I'll say to people things like, you know, maybe writing down your thoughts and, and sending them somewhere might be helpful. Um, my husband and I set up an enduring power of attorney early on in the piece and we've talked about the future. Um, if I get to a stage where I'm not safe at home, I've said to him, it's okay for me to go somewhere to keep us both safe and, mm. and that's okay. And um, and I talk to people about, you know, have you had a conversation about the future, about what that might look like? Um, and a lot of people say no and they, they come into hospital um, significantly unwell, uh, sometimes with a progressive condition. And they, they don't want, while I say you work in the here and now, there's also that planning aspect of you need to kind of prepare for the eventuality that you may not be able to do things for yourself or speak for yourself um, and, and set those things like enduring power of attorney up so that you can park that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a bit like life insurance. I, I often say to people, have you got life insurance and have you got critical illness cover? And they'll go, well, I'm not sure. And, I, and, and you know, they say, I think I've got life insurance, but I'm not sure about the critical illness. And I say, you know, to me... Life, getting life insurance is one of those adult things, like getting a will. Right. You know, I'm an adult. I'm I'm going to be sensible. I'm going to set up these things. But life insurance means I'm going to die at some point, and we don't like to think about that too much. Mm. So I said we often set up a thing like life insurance and a will, tuck them away somewhere, and and don't kind of want to know from there. So mm. it's it's kind of a necessary evil. Mm. Well, thank you so much for sharing that as well, because I think it adds a richness to the story of the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And what we'll do uh, in the show notes of this episode, we'll put a link to the blog, and that way people can click it. Um, so if you're listening now, have a look. You'll be able to click and have a have a read of of your journey. It sounds like yeah. Yeah, and and the blog is some is, is predominantly about my journey with Parkinson's. Um, it's called Parkies and Me dot com so it's called parkies and me um, and it, it's also got things that aren't about Parkinson's I've 
I've written poetry since I was five years old. Um, and uh, the strange thing that has happened for me is um, I belong to a Facebook Parkinson's group and it is proven that if you have any artistic talent or, or, or anything like that, uh, whether you paint, whether you draw, whether you write poetry like I do, there is, there is something about Parkinson's that enhances those abilities. Hmm. So um, I, I've put some of my poetry on my blog as well and it's like just because we want to focus on something else just for today just for now yeah oh that's wonderful well i might ask you to send me a poem um, because on the website of the seeds i've got a whole section of poetry and mm -hmm. some is from guests have contributed some i've written and there's quite a variety there so yeah it'd be great to feature uh, one of your poems yeah I've, I've, i bought some with me so i can give you give you one later if you like oh that'd be wonderful thank mm. you very much so um, having talked about what you're involved in and doing, I would like to turn the attention to this trust, the sure. Welfare Guardian Trust, and just find out a little bit more about it and what it, what it is doing mm -hmm. and what it is involved with. Sure. So when, when did it start? <laughs> um, I, it's quite difficult when you've been involved in something that seems such a big part of your life to yeah. go, when did it actually start? I'm pretty sure it was about um, two t 2020 yeah it's been going for about three years yeah. um it, it started um even my husband said how did you end up getting sort of in this role and there was a community meeting um that was held um at the hospital uh and some uh lawyers had come along to talk about the um protection of a uh, property was it Protection of Personal and Property Rights Act 1988 mm -hmm. about enduring power of attorney and triple P and R Act applications and things like that. And um, so they were giving us an education and, and they were saying about the welfare guardians that usually people would choose somebody close to them. Uh, but that there was an issue um, if somebody didn't have a, a person that they trusted to look after their health and well-being, that there was nothing anywhere in any any system um, where you could find somebody to do that so sort of at that meeting it was sort of mooted that maybe somebody should look into setting up um, a trust and there there are um, branches they're, they're separate entities but there are welfare guardian trusts um, in various places in New Zealand mm. um, and so uh, a, a few lawyers and there's social workers, um, etc., decided that we'd look into it, and, and expression, expressions of interest were, were taken basically. And I put my hand up and said, I'd like to be involved. Mm, that's wonderful. Yeah, I do remember something of it because um, one of the people who's been involved is Nicole Murphy. Mm -hmm. um, so she's an amazing person. And she's also a partner here at Perry Field, where yeah. I work. Um, so I think it was through her that I got involved in providing some input mm. at around, you're right, I think it was about three years ago. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's really great. And so tell us a little bit about what that actually means, practically speaking, like what is the trust there for? Um, the, the trust is there. Uh, we have a website um, where people can refer to the trust. And we, we do expect that people, as much as humanly possible, will look to find family to, to represent the people concerned because uh, even if we have quite a few volunteers, it's, it's a finite resource and we need to make sure that it's there for people who really don't have anybody to look out for their, their interests. 
Um, so basically, the it's a lot of the time it's social workers, it can be doctors, it can be uh, residential care providers that say, hey, we've got this person, we feel they're vulnerable and they need to have their interests protected. Um, and so they'll put in a referral. And then we have a, a coordinator called Tim, who's amazing, um, who uh, gathers those from the website uh, and we bring it, uh, um, he'll send it out to us, the, the, um, the application for a welfare guardian that the referrer has put in, and we all kind of consider it and then talk about it at a monthly meeting. Right. So, and then the, the really practical side of it would be if there are the right people mm-hmm. and there isn't anyone who could be appointed, then, yeah, what, what would happen next? So if we didn't have any welfare guardians available? No, if you did have them, yeah, what oh, would okay. happen next? They so, would be the ones who are appointed? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so we have a number of volunteers. We're slowly b- building our pool of volunteers. We're always looking for more. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tim uh, has a really good relationship with, with the volunteers, and he reports to us who's got capacity okay. um, to take on more people to look out for. Um, and so um, he also has an essence of whether they'd be capable of having somebody that's quite tricky or whether they need somebody that just needs some basic oversight to make sure that they're, they're being looked after right if they're in residential care and, and, and doing all the things that a welfare guardian would do. Right, so I he's see. really good at saying, I think this would be a, a good person for Jack, John, whoever, to... Um, work with and they've got capacity and Mm -hmm. so he he has a really good handle on them he's involved in the training Mm -hmm. so we have Tim and we have some social workers um, that are well schooled and um, things like welfare guardian um, responsibilities etc and they'll do training sessions and we usually have like four or five people so we do a sort of a block training session to Mm -hmm. to make sure that they're they're skilled up and and he's a constant point of contact so that if they have any questions or queries Tim can take those and then like I said we've got lawyers we've got um, people that were uh, high reasonably high in the medical profession previously um, social workers uh, so he can he can bring queries to to the team and and um, in that way he gets um, the advice to help support the, the volunteers. Well, Tim sounds like an amazing person, so a shout-out to Tim and all the work that he's doing. Yeah. Um, and in terms of the future, what is your hope? Are you you're, you're gathering more people who can volunteer? Because presumably there's quite a big need in this area. Um, there is a huge need, um, and there's always a balance between if we get volunteers and we don't have any referrals Mm. then people who volunteer really want to get stuck in and and do the kind of service that a welfare guardian might do Um, and any kind of volunteering when a person sort of decides to volunteer they want to they want to do it now they don't want to wait for six months before they're able to do that so um, you know we we try to find them somebody reasonably quickly so that um, they they can link in with somebody and do the work that they wanted to volunteer for. Same with the referrals. You know, if a referrer sends us a referral yeah. and we're saying, look, you know, we, we won't have any anybody for you for three months, then, you know, they're sort of rightly concerned about that person's well-being in the interim. So 
it's, it's having that balance between the referrals and, and the volunteers that's the important part of the picture. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. I'm just curious then in terms of the, the integration of your working life and this role that you've got with the trust, like how does that fit in? So, um, yes, my, my work as a social worker so I think is valuable um, for the trust as a trustee mm-hmm. um, because I've worked a lot with people under 65. Um, I felt that I wanted to volunteer so that I gave them a voice um, mm. because predominantly um, people do still think of this as an issue for older people, but I see it all the time in my work. And I just felt there needed to be somebody on the board that um, kind of got the issues for for younger people mm-hmm. who are vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I can see where that would be a valuable perspective and a voice to have, mm. um, because there probably would be a tendency to say, "Well, that's something that's only for older people." Mm. But actually, mm. as we this whole conversation has pointed out, this. Things happen in life, don't they, mm. that, that can affect us at all different ages. Absolutely. And maybe just before we finish up, would you be able to read one of those poems that you mentioned before? Sure. Okay, so this one is called, Have You Seen Your Mother Naked? Have you seen your mother naked, her body then unclad, or your auntie or your grandma? Now that would be as bad. I've not seen my mother naked, resplendent into her glory, but here now is the reason, the purpose of this story. I embarked upon a program, the object to get fit, the venue for my efforts, the swimming pool was it. Now I'm not made of money, no private pool for me, so off to public swimming baths I went and paid my fee. Now I don't think I'm all that shy, I don't think myself a prude, but if I wore no clothes at home it would be thought quite rude. I've never let my children see the bod from whence they came, with not a stitch to hide it, their cheeks would burn with shame. So great then was my shock, it came as a surprise, the naked flesh that I saw then parade before my eyes. From nubile teens and little tots to grannies by the score, they proudly strode about the room, they couldn't show much more. They'd sit and talk of recipes or how blue now was the sky, I couldn't do the same as them and look them in the eye. For here now were before me, strange bits and bobs paraded, both young and old, just all set free, unfettered and unaided. Perhaps I should have joined them all, this naked chatting throng, removed my clothes and joined their group and simply gone along. But not for me this nonchalance of naked flesh exposed, I scurry to a cubicle and keep the curtains closed. For I've not seen my mother naked, but others I do see, and I'm somebody's mother and don't want them to see me. (laughs) That's great. Well, thank you for coming and sharing about the trust and what it's doing, but also thank you so much for sharing about your life and being vulnerable enough to share about your own diagnosis and your Mm -hmm. own journey in health. Um, I I can tell that you would be a very empathetic person because you've actually gone through things that Mm. you're now helping people with. And I love, always love if people are able to have their life, you know, the work that they do actually matches something that they are passionate about and that they care about. So hearing your journey and, you know, growing up and what life was like for you and then deciding to study social work I found it really inspiring that you went and said I'm not going to be a victim I'm going to take the circumstances and use them in a positive way so yeah yeah, thank you so much for joining me and sharing some of your life story thank you 
Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sue. For me, there was a lot of different highlights, and I really enjoyed hearing about the Welfare Guardian Trust and all the great work that they're doing. If you enjoyed this podcast, then check out some of the others in the back catalog, and there's heaps more information at the revamped website, theseeds.nz. Until next time!